about Scripture, of course, we understand that when we see these things happen, we see the Lord perform a miracle, we often are uh, quickly drawn to that miracle. We're drawn to what's happening here. And the miracle is a miracle, no doubt. But the conflict is over how Jesus is performing this miracle. And there is a very strange and really absurd accusation that the Pharisees make towards Jesus. This man who is blind and dumb, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting this demon out by Satan or by the devil. So the accusation is very strange. So the very one who's possessing that man is the same one who's casting out the devil? Quite a dilemma, isn't it? Why would the devil cast out a demon? Why would he cast out one of his own kingdom? Yet we see that Matthew's narrative here initially seems to draw us back to this conflict. Matthew again says very little about this miracle, but he speaks more about the response of the Pharisees and to the people who witness it. So the confrontations continue. I want you to notice with me, there's a couple of headings we're going to deal with today, and we'll see what time allows us, how far we get. But I want you to notice with me in verses 22 and 23, an obvious heading here is the gracious cure of Christ. The gracious cure. The man who is brought unto Jesus, notice he's brought. Someone took the time to bring this man possessed to Jesus. He's possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him insomuch that the blind saw and dumb both spake and saw. Now, it is a wonderful thing when we see somebody bring another person to Jesus. It's a wonderful thing when we see that person who brings them to Jesus knows that the cure for your problem, the, the, the solution to the issue is only found in Jesus Christ. But this is an extraordinary case. Someone has brought a man possessed with a devil. To be possessed with a devil means to be taken captive to be secured by. This demonic possession is not just a light holding of, but this man is in the throes of a complete and utter and full demonic possession. Which, by the way, demonic possession is not a myth and it is not a fairy tale. This demon has caused this man to be blind and dumb. The very cause of the man's problem is the demon itself. A man who is blind and dumb has no way out. He has no way to escape. He can't see Jesus. He can't speak to Jesus. He can't see the Savior. But notice that in an instant... As soon as the man brought him to Jesus, there is no account by Matthew that says that the man asked for anything. It doesn't say the man asked to be relieved of the, of the devil. It doesn't even say that the man who brought him to Jesus said, will you remove the devil? No, the devil was in the man and the man came and the Bible says he healed him. In an instant. Healed him. And Matthew describes how far this healing went. 
insomuch that the now the blind can see and the dumb can speak. Satan is, of course, a liar, right? He's the, he is evil. There is no good in him. He's the father of lies. All he, everything he says is a lie. But when Satan is taken away, when Satan is dethroned, if you will, when he's removed, man sees what grace has done. All the cures that Christ does is, are gracious. Every time we preach the Word of God, every time we speak the name of Christ, the devils and Satan himself tremble. Our God is not afraid or fearful of the devil in any way, shape, or form. His knees are not knocking. He is not intimidated. This devil had no right to stay as long as the Lord said, you're removed. But you'll notice that even though this gracious cure is being worked in front of them, verse 23 says, And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Over and over we've watched people look. That's been a theme this morning, hasn't it? Look, behold, see. There's been a lot of accounts where people have been astonished. They've been amazed at what they were witnessing, but yet we see not a complete coming to faith by all. We don't see all of everyone who sees it believing. The question is an interesting one because you really can take a couple different approaches from this. To ask a question such as, is not this the son of David, can be taken positively or negatively. In the sense, is not this the son of David, could be a question of belief. We look and we say, is not this the son of David? As if the evidence is right before us. The second, half, the second way we can ask that question is we can say, is there a little bit of hesitation in it? Is not this the son of David? Not sure it is, but it sure looks like him. The son of David was a messianic title. This was not a random title that we would just say. The reason they said, is not this the son of David, is a question of messianic significance. So what does that mean? Does everyone here, are they on the positive side that are saying, is not this the son of David? Or on the non-believing side with a little bit of hesitation, is not this the son of David? Now again, you may have a translation this morning that may not ask, ask that question exactly the same way. As a matter of fact, you might have a translation today that if it is the same as is in mine, it might not even have the word not there. It might just say, is this the son of David? which again would feed the idea that there may have been a level of doubt by the people who saw this. But to see the son of David means that they saw more than just Jesus. They saw the very fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah, which is why we read Isaiah 35, which clearly said that when the Messiah came, blind eyes would see and the dumb would be able to speak. But that then there was a separation between those that would see and those who would not see. So were there people saying, is this he? 
Or were they saying it can't be? No, it's got to be him. No, maybe it's not. There were a lot of voices. There were a lot of things being said. Yet the people, here's all we know about them. They were all amazed. Amazement does not equal conversion. You might be amazed at what you see and hear every time you come to church and every time you hear the word of God preach, every time you read the scriptures for yourself, you might be amazed that's not necessarily conversion. We can see a lot of amazing things. Uh, people use the word miracle and they throw it around like it's an everyday occurrence. We as ascribe miracles to everyday events and we say that's a miracle. No, a miracle here is what Jesus himself does by casting out a demon. And now a blind man can see and a dumb man can speak. So we see the gracious cure. Verse 24, we see the expected response of the Pharisees, the godless contempt. The godless contempt of the Pharisees. They saw it. They couldn't argue with it. They couldn't say it didn't happen, but yet when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. The Pharisees, we might say, never learned. Their MO was always the same. If Jesus was doing it, it couldn't be really the Messiah. If he's performing the miracle, it can't really be the case. Over and over again, we see that the Lord himself performs these miracles. Now, this is not the first time the Pharisees witnessed a, de a demon being cast out or a man being healed from it. This has been a while back, but in Matthew 9, verse 34, they made the same accusation, which I believe this is another account it says that as they went out in, our, in Matthew 9, verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and the multitude marveled saying, it, is what, it, is, it was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. It's the same, it's the same accusation as saying that the, he's doing this miracle by Beelzebub. It's the same accusation. This Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of the demons. Now the Pharisees are boxing themselves into a corner that they cannot get out of. Because if, you are, if what you are saying is true, the Pharisees are saying, the very thing that you're saying is that Satan's kingdom is divided. And if Satan's kingdom is divided, then it cannot stand, then it's going to fall. How can a demon cast out another demon? That would suggest a civil war going on within the kingdom of Satan. We'll get to that further in just a moment. Jesus didn't deal with it in Matthew 9. If you kept on reading, he doesn't even deal with that situation. The next verse says he went to their synagogues and he kept preaching. He didn't, he didn't talk to the Pharisees at that point. But this time, now he opens his mouth and he begins to respond to them. Although the next verse shows us that he knew their thoughts. So here's another situation. They bring another man, or they, another man is brought to Jesus, and their accusation is a contemptuous one, one that says, this 
cannot be. And if it is, then here's what's happening. The devil's doing this. I would say to you this morning that to ascribe the work of God in any way, shape, or form to the work of the devil is the epitome of what is known as the unpardonable sin. And if you think today that that's just an idle word and that's just a statement off your cuff that you will not give an account for, you will give an account for that. It is the picture of the hardest of hearts to say that this miracle that we're seeing is not being done by the Messiah, but it's being done by the devil himself. It's to ascribe the works of God to Satan. Many people who sit in churches and they sweat over whether or not they've committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is ascribing the work of God to the devil. That's what the unpardonable sin is. The Catholic Church teaches a whole lot of other things that are unpardonable sins. That's the unpardonable sin. To ascribe the works of God to the devil. That's what they're accusing Jesus of. So we see that this contempt by the Pharisees is met in verses 25 and 26 by the glorious conquest of Satan. Jesus now is going to completely put them in their place. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? This is the highest degree of foolishness. But this is par for what the Pharisees, their whole doctrine was based on. Imagine, if you will for a moment, Satan being divided against himself. He's his own enemy. His own kingdom. He's at war with his own kingdom. Here's one thing that is certain. The devils and the, the angels, the demonic angels of Satan, they are not at war against each other. Matter of fact, they're in concert together against the things of God. There is no civil war going on inside of Satan's kingdom. But yet Jesus is saying, your argument is this, is that if I am guilty of casting out demons in the power of Satan, then Satan's kingdom must be defeated or it must be divided because why would Satan want to cast out a demon of a person that he's possessing? It doesn't even make logical sense, nevertheless spiritual sense. Imagine a house being divided against itself. What happens when homes are divided, that house doesn't stand. What happens when cities are divided? That city doesn't stand. It's civil war. It's war between brothers. It's war between those who are in the same kingdom. Yet the Pharisees, in their earthly wisdom, probably thought they had made a statement that Jesus could not get out of. And yet... As the master teacher, he uses this to show just the foolishness of the Pharisees. And that's what the rest of this passage deals with. All the way down to verse 37, Jesus is dealing with the context. We only read to verse 30, but all the way down to verse 37, Jesus is dealing with the context 
of this very thing. Jesus answers it, and he says, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now, this might seem strange to us. Why is Jesus saying that your children cast them out? Well, because whether or not it was true or false, some of the Pharisees, and most likely their children, professed to be able to cast out demons. In other words, there were Pharisees who say, we have the ability to cast out demons. So guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to turn the Pharisees back on their head, and he's going to say, then how did they cast them out? If you're saying I cast them out by the devil, by the devil how did your children cast them out? Jesus says, if I have done this miracle by Beelzebub, and the Pharisees also had figured that out, where did you learn it from? Your own sons have dealings with the devil himself. It's brilliant. Jesus' argument is brilliant. He said, that means your own sons must be in league with the devil. Because you're saying, I did it by Beelzebub. So you mean to tell me that I did it by Beelzebub, but your children did it by something other than that? They're in a dilemma they have no way out of. Because if they acknowledge that they did it by the true spirit of God, then they have to acknowledge that what Jesus did was actually real and that he was the Messiah. He's not going to do that. Jesus goes on. He says, but if, if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Jesus is pointing out to them that it makes no sense to accept that even their other Jews were casting out demons legitimately, but that he was doing it by the power of Satan. In other words, Jesus is saying, so your casting out is legitimate and mine is illegitimate. But then he, again, continues to back them into this corner. And he says, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Christ, in effect, is saying, I cast these devils out by the Spirit of God. That means divine power, the Spirit of God, has come in direct conflict with the devils. God's kingdom is not in any way, shape, or form in league or in agreement with the devil's kingdom. There is no treaty between them. There is no cooperation between them. The divine kingdom of God is in direct opposition to the kingdom of Satan. Jesus, when he says that the kingdom of God has come, literally he's referring to his own person. He said, in my coming and the casting out of the devils by the spirit of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ has come. And he tells them that the kingdom of God has come unto you. It's right before you. If Satan's casting out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? It can't stand. It would fall. But Jesus is saying very clearly, the kingdom of God has come unto you. And he gives another illustration of this. 
by saying that the kingdom of God is coming unto you, he is in effect telling them that the very fact that Satan is a defeated foe and that Satan's kingdom will not stand, it will not last, is a proof that the, the kingdom of Christ has come and the kingdom of grace is here. But then he goes and he gives an illustration further about how this victory over Satan took place. Verse 29, or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house? In this scenario, the devil himself is the strong man. He holds people in possession as a person who holds property. That's what possession is. There's no getting goods from him without first encountering him. In other words, the idea of destroying Satan while you're his friend is foolishness. When the Lord began his work, when the Lord came to the cross, when the Lord bled and died upon the cross, when he was put in the grave and he rose three days later, Satan's been bound. The, 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 the man is, is, the strong man has been bound. He takes out of the house. This is what's happening in this text. The strong man has been bound and he takes out of the house those that belong to Satan. There's deliverance here. There is a deliverance from Satan, from the darkness and the, the power of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. Satan would not do that if he was the one casting out the demons. He would be divided against himself. And yet what's happening here is Jesus is speaking of how he bound the strong man. Spoiled his house. This is how the Lord's explaining what the Pharisees so foolishly tried to explain. So you're telling me, Jesus says, that Satan went in and bound himself, divided his own home, stole his own goods? He said no. And that's why he leads at a very strong, stirring statement. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There is no compromise. Folks, there is no compromise between Christ and the devil. This foolish doctrine that has filtered into some churches that Jesus Christ paid a ransom to the devil is heresy. And if you believe that, you need to get your doctrine right. Because that is not what happened. The devil was not paid anything. Yet some say that this, this ransom was paid. He doesn't compromise with Satan. He doesn't say, let's make a deal. Satan was not with him. He's against him. You are on one of two sides. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of Satan. This watered-down gospel that says, I'm straddling both. No, if you're unbelieving today, if you're unconverted today, you are in the kingdom of Satan. You are not straddling the fence. You are the enemy of God. 
You say, that doesn't preach well today. It's not about preaching well. It's about the truth. And the truth is, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus is clearly saying, I have nothing to do with the kingdom of the devil in compromise. We are not in league together. Almost the atrocity that you would ascribe anything of God's works to someone he's not in any treaty or league with. But yet that's what the Pharisee's accusation is. You are casting out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. You see, this morning you are on one of two sides. He who is with me and he who is against me. But then notice he says, and we didn't read this, verse 31, down to the end of, the, end, end of uh, verse 37, we see the guilty condemnation of the Pharisees by Christ. This is where we get the verse that is known as the unpardonable sin. So remember the context of why that verse happened. That's why expository preaching is so important. Context matters. People have lifted verse 31 and 32 out of context for so many years that they've made the unpardonable sin mean just about anything you want it to mean. He says, wherefore I say unto you, as a result of what he just said, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Now think about what he's saying there. All manner of sin and even blasphemy shall be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Folks, you need to listen very, very carefully. This is not just some off-the-cuff warning. This is a sobering reminder of the seriousness of what the Pharisees just did. The Pharisees committed the unpardonable sin by ascribing the miracles of Christ to the work of Satan. The sin of bringing the Spirit of God, the work of God, and saying that the devil, Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, this is why this happened. This is not a small sin. To believe that and to propagate that is to harden your own heart against the truth. See, we have this problem between, is it God that does the hardening of man's heart or does man harden his own heart? Well, it's both. And if we understand biblical doctrine, we know even the case of Pharaoh. People try to jump to one side or the other. They say, well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, you can't get around the passages in Exodus that say God hardened his heart as well. It's both. But nothing will harden your heart quicker and more certainly than to ascribe the work of God to the devil. Again, note, what did that verse say? All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. The context matters. People who say the, the unpardonable sin is murder, or the unpardonable sin is adultery, or the unpardonable sin is profanity. No, he says the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. Our Lord is clearly declaring 
that these men, these Pharisees, hardening their own heart. Now, I believe the Scripture's teaching this, that those who ascribe this, they don't come to repentance. Now, again, we don't know all the mysteries of God. But you understand and you read that verse, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. So think about it. Can a person who actually does that, do they ever come to repentance? Or do their hearts become so hardened beyond the real that they never come to repentance? Yeah, we don't understand all the mysteries of election. We don't understand all the ways in which God works. But I just want you to see what the verse says. We must be, and you must be today, especially if you're here under the sound of my voice, who are not in Christ yet, you better be very careful about how you deal with and how you respond to the Holy Spirit. And you better not ignore it. And you better not just say, I don't want any part of this. I don't believe any of this foolishness. I don't believe any of this garbage. I don't believe this. You better be careful how you deal with the Spirit. Because we understand, and again, we can get so far off the rails here, we can start saying, well, if I'm one of the elect, I'll be elected. You're not understanding biblical doctrine. This, this call to repentance and believe the gospel, it's not an invitation to you. It is a commandment to you. We are not inviting you to ask Jesus into your heart. We're not saying, go home and think about it. Go home and consider it. The command is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not go home and compare it with other teachings. I'm not inviting you to come to Christ. I'm commanding on the Scripture, the authority of Scripture, repent and believe the Gospel. There's a big difference in inviting someone to come and commanding them to come, not by my authority, but by God's authority. This tenderness that we need to have, our conduct towards the Spirit, Verse 32, whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man. Look how, seri look how serious this gets. It shall be forgiven him. Now, how did Jesus perform the miracle? By the Spirit of God. He says, even if you speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven you. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or in the world to come. I'm not incredibly smart, but I can understand what this says. Blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost will not be. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. There's only one meaning to that. Now in this earthly life, or in eternity, there is no forgiveness for blasphemy or speaking against the Holy Ghost. Why would anybody, the question has to be asked, why would anybody, first of all, ever speak a word against Christ? It amazes me how many people speak against Christ and how loving and how caring and how compassionate Christ is and to speak blasphemous words against Him. I, I don't even understand that. And yet the Scripture says that can be forgiven. But not if you speak against the Holy Ghost, it can't. This whole idea that the Holy Ghost is the third, it, He's the little brother of the Godhead. You better get your doctrine right. The Holy Spirit is just as much God. Again, we've let the charismatics scare us to death over talking about the Holy Spirit. 
Because they're doing all this foolishness and saying, this is the work of the Spirit. So we're like, we're going to back off of that. Listen, Christ was not quiet about the Holy Spirit's role. And he wasn't quiet about how you deal with him. Imagine the offense is so serious, so hardening to the heart, that the Scripture says it's impossible to extend forgiveness to a person who willfully regards the Spirit and calls him in league or in treaty or in compromise with the devil. What does that mean? That means the unpardonable sin equals spiritual death. Not just earthly death, spiritual death. This is depravity and corruption of the worst kind. To say that the works of God can be attributed to the works of Satan. It's the worst of all. Imagine taking the grace of God, the mercies of God, the long-suffering of God, the casting out of demons, the healings, and say, the devil did this. It's a person that no doubt is spiritually dead. They're in a condition where repentance isn't there. Which leads us to this parable, if you will. Verse 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Every time I've heard this preached over the years, it's always picked up at verse 33, not taken in the context of everything that's happening. And it's used to describe, hey, what you produce should match what you say. But this is the context of the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not just verse 31 and 32, and then we jump on to a new sermon topic. It's all in the same conversation that he's having here. And he says, make the tree good and the fruit good, or else the tree's corrupt and the fruit's corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. This is an or else statement. He contends with the Pharisees, and he simply, to simplify this, he says, you've got to be consistent. You either have to accept me and my works, or you have to reject me and my works. Either accept or reject. You know what he's telling them? You can only judge me by my works. The works in which I have done, judge me by those. Those are what you judge me by. But don't call my work good and then charge me with being in treaty with the devil in doing it. Because what he's saying is, is if, I'm in, if I am in league with the devil, then I'm doing his works. It can't be both. Why do we judge a tree by its fruits? And why do we judge a man by his actions? Because it's the only true way to judge a person. You can say whatever you want to say, but the only way to truly judge an individual, what they believe, is by their works. Jesus is saying, you have to judge me by my works. My works are the works 
of a heavenly kingdom. My works are the work of the Holy Spirit, not the works of Satan, not the works of evil, but the works of God. They're connected. Jesus is saying it can't be one of them. It goes right back to verse 30 about he who is with me and he who is against me. Now, this is the strongest language that Jesus has used to this point in Matthew. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? So much for Jesus always being loving and tender and kind and compassionate. He says, you're a generation of vipers. You're evil. It's much in the same spirit of John the Baptist. Generation of vipers. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, contextually, he's talking about the Pharisees. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. What's he saying about their heart? Your heart is evil. Because an evil heart brings forth evil fruit. A good heart brings forth good fruit. Your heart brings forth evil. He repeats the words that John used. They had spoken evil. The Pharisees, from the moment that Jesus' earthly ministry began, their hearts were filled with malice and with a plan and a desire to destroy him. How's it go back to the accusation? Because by charging Jesus with doing the works of Satan, they were showing what the treasure of their heart really was. Evil. He, he's, he is all but showing them their own wickedness. This accusation shows just how wicked your heart is. So if you ascribe the works of God to the works of the devil, friend, what you're doing is you are showing how wicked your heart really is. Jesus says, be consistent. Your heart is either good or it's evil. But you can't bring forth good with an evil heart. And you can't be evil and bring forth good. It's either good or it's evil. The Lord shows that it is your heart that is showing where the problem is. Now, he's already said enough, but he tells them that your heart cannot speak good things because by what you've accused me of shows that your heart is wicked and evil. Now again, don't disconnect verse 36 and verse 37 from the narrative. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Jesus is all but saying, I want you to understand something. You may not think a great wrong has been done here by attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. But do you realize, he says, every idle word. Every word that you speak. Every idle word you will give an account of that idle word. Now, we can quickly run to our Christian life, and we can, and I've done this, sadly. I told you about some of my nightmares I still have as being a youth pastor, right? And trying to be the entertainment. 
and talking about take this verse, this idle words, and talk about speaking unkind to your friend and do it. And again, we shouldn't do those things. But do you realize the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about here? That idle word that you thought was nothing to accuse God of the works of Satan, you are going to give an account for that. That's the idle word. This isn't just some little Christian game we're playing here. This, you, by God himself, are being told you're going to give an account for every idle word you speak. Which means this word that the Pharisees say said was not going to go unjudged. Now, based upon what he's already told us about being judged, what does that mean? He says that sin cannot be forgiven. Man says, well, that's just my opinion. Folks, be careful about treating words that you say and saying that really is nothing to be concerned about. That's just an idle word. To make light of this and to think that this is something that was not a big deal would be to miss the entire point of what Jesus was saying. Words will be accounted for. Words, he says, he says, prove men just or worthy of condemnation. That their very works can be judged by their words. Think about where we've come. Jesus, by what he said, revealed what their heart really was. It is impossible, and I've said this many times, it's impossible for any pastor, any elder, I don't care what he is, to determine really the condition of your heart. People still ask me today, is that person saved? Is that person this? The only thing we can do by judging that is by the outward works. But I inwardly, I cannot see your heart. I cannot see where it really is. But if your works are evil, and then you try to tell me, but my heart is pure, but you keep doing evil. You better go back and relook at your testimony. Because the only thing you can base it on is what you say isn't all, it's the works. Because he's telling them what you do is coming out of the abundance of your heart. You do, you do and say evil things because your heart is evil. This idea that, look, one, two, three, pray after me, I got saved, and then you go live like the devil the rest of your life, and you say, but I'm going to heaven. I'm going to contend with you that you're not. Now, you have to give an account to God, not me. But to simply think that I just prayed this prayer and I'm on my way to heaven. No, he said it's either good or it's bad. How many words do we say in our earthly life that are idle, but they're not to this extent? But we should be mindful about what we say. Be mindful for what we attribute the works of God to. In the day of judgment, Jesus himself is saying that you will give an account. The Pharisees, in context here, you will give an account for these idle words that you said. Remember, Judgment is coming for every person. We get this idea that if we're in the faith, we don't have, we're going to stand a, a judgment as well. The unbelievers are going to face a judgment also. 
But think about the reality that what Jesus is talking about is these idle words that the Pharisees spoke will be remembered eternally. Jesus, every time the Pharisees tried to bring him to a place of accusing him of something, was always able to turn them back on their head and say, this is not what it is. The people asked the question, is not this the son of David? Folks, no matter what the contemporary church, and I'm not saying every new church is bad, but no matter what the contemporary church tries to tell you that Jesus is, Jesus Christ really is black and white. You're either for him or you're against him. And this idea of going to every single person and telling them, you just remember, God loves you. God doesn't love you in your sin, and God does not love you in your pollution and in your corruption. We got this idea that everybody's equal. No, listen, you're either for me or you're against me. We've watered down the gospel so far that we've just made this, hey, just think and consider. It's not the biblical gospel. If you're not converted today, the command is exactly the same. It's repent and believe the gospel and don't give excuses why you won't come. Christ has never turned away anybody who obediently came to him. There's nobody in hell that could say, I came to Jesus and he turned me away. No. If you end up in hell, it's because you rejected him. Command, repent and believe. Very rarely, and again, I'm not an expert in this, but very rarely have I ever heard an unbeliever say to me, I don't believe in Christ, or I hate Jesus, or I'm against him. He's more just, I can take it or leave it. Like, I very rarely have heard someone say, you know what, I hate God. Now, there, are, there are people out there who do it, but I very rarely hear it that way. But most people are just apathetic. That they think, it's a, they think it's a choice. If I want him, I'll take him. If I don't, I won't. And in the end, I'll still be, I'll still be okay. No. You can't take him or leave him. It's not possible to just take it or leave it. It's not possible for you today to say, look, I have my right to do whatever I want to do with Jesus today. No, you are commanded to come unto him. If you are not for him... Christ himself says, you are against me. There's absolutely no neutrality when it comes to God. And our phony ministries over the years that talk about, well, we don't really have a thought on hell. We don't really have a thought on sin. We don't really have a thought on the blood. We don't really have a thought on those things. They're against him. You realize you realize wolves like Osteen are still propagating that, right? And if you got that garbage in your house, I don't do this very often, but you need to get rid of it. There's no good in that. He's a wolf. I mean, he's not even a wolf in sheep's clothes. He's a wolf. You can see it by what he's propagating. He doesn't believe in hell. He doesn't believe that the blood of Christ matters. He doesn't believe any of these things. And yet, you know, he's still the best-selling author. And yet, how many people are buying lies? You see, the reality is you can't be neutral to what's being preached today. 
You can't simply say, I'll take it or leave it. Christ himself is all but saying, if you don't believe in me, you belong to Satan. If you don't follow me, you are my enemy. If you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus was saying there's only one way and he's it. There's no one else coming, folks. He's it. Imagine the kind of opposition that that kind of talk today from pulpits brings. If I said that in some pulpits of America, I wouldn't be asked not to come back at the end of the sermon. I'd be asked to leave right then. We don't talk about that kind of Jesus anymore. We only talk about the Jesus who's all loving, no judging, no wrath. You're not talking about the God of the Bible. Folks, we've been confronted this morning with something very, very serious, and I hope we understand that this blind and dumb man, he had his needs met. But God's not inviting you to consider him. He's commanding you to repent. Those who refuse to come to Christ, you will end up separated from God for all of eternity. I don't say that proudly. I say that pleading with you. You are in rebellion against God to reject Him. I trust that God, through the Spirit, the Spirit of God would open our eyes and open our hearts and would show us the seriousness of what we heard this morning. You can ask yourself the question today like they did, is not this the son of David? And do nothing with it. I trust that if you're unsaved today, you repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Father, we're just reminded again of how undeserving anyone is to be part of the kingdom of God. Our Lord in His perfection and our Lord in His willingness to go to the cross and to die for sinful wretches such as we are. Lord, and to think about the realities of how, how can anyone reject such a loving Savior? But Lord, we also know today that even though the devil is a defeated foe and he is bound, his influence and the activity of demons is among us. Lord, we see it every day in our society. Some of us have been tempted to just brush it off as coincidence and brush it off as something that's not really there. But we know that demonic forces are at work. But Lord, we know that Ultimately, Christ has gotten the victory. Father, we pray for those that are unconverted at this hour, at this moment, that today, today would be their glorious day of salvation. And Lord, we pray that your will as it's done, that we would rest in it. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to finish by singing a hymn.